0: Hello and welcome to this week at the movies. I'm Matt. I'm Eric. And we are here uh, with a very special, we'll call it our first bottle episode of the year. It's a slower time at the theaters. And this year, if you've been following along on my blog, I'm going through some of my favorite 70s films films from the 1970s and so we thought in the first of what maybe a couple installments this year we'd look at a few of those 70s films uh we're going to look at a couple that i've looked at earlier and one that uh eric was really excited about um that we actually both love so uh Hopefully, you were excited about 70s films. If you're just looking for a way to unwind after Buffalo broke your heart, just know this is a safe space. I, too, am looking for a way to overcome that heartbreaking loss. But, Eric, how was your week? It
1: was a week. How was your week?
0: The same.
1: All (laughs) right. And
0: and Leisure Time hasn't been any better thanks to that football game. You know what? That seems like Go ahead.
1: I'll, I'll tell you one thing about the 70s is the movies are... Biting and rough, and so doing these for leisure didn't offer a lot of, I don't know, reprieve from things. It was, you'll see yeah. what we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, and we didn't exactly pick the most lighthearted '70s movies. Although I'm not sure there are a ton of lighthearted movies. Even like the other week, we are not going to talk about it tonight. But I watched rewatched Grease. Oh yeah, it's sort of a depressing story
1: in <laughs> a lot of ways. <laughs>
0: yeah, Subject, but. Yeah. Speaking of depressing stories, we'll dive in with our first one, which is the 1973 classic, the wicker man, the wicker man. And uh, there is uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, He plays uh, the kind of leader of this group of people that live on a secluded British Island that are, well, at first they appear to be hippies, but as you dive a little bit further into it, you realize they're a little something else. And then we have our hero, Edward Woodward, who, uh, plays a police officer who's sent to the island to look for a missing girl. He is a devout Christian, which immediately, he's also a stickler for rules. Both things immediately put him at odds with most of the townsfolk who are a little bit more of the uh, free love, free thinking variety. And all of that comes to a head in a very alarming uh, way in a finale sequence that uh, eric i saw this movie the first time in college and i think it's all i when i was re-watching it i had forgotten about all the and let me just preface this the 70s they were not afraid to just throw nudity yeah wherever and whenever they felt like and i forgot about some of that uh my wife kept wandering in being like what are you watching? And i tell her it's a religious psychological thriller and she would sort of give me the stink eye. But what stood out to me was that final act. Uh, and Edward Woodward is so incredible. Uh, they remade this movie, sadly, in 2006 with Nicolas Cage. And please do not ever watch that. And if you're thinking that's The Wicker Man, do yourself a favor and go find this original because it has always stuck with me because of the performances and because of the way that it's put together. I mean, the Nicolas Cage version just ain't it. Eric, how did you feel about First of The all, Wicker Man?
1: Let's not totally dismiss the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man movie for its own entertainment value, okay?
0: It's an unintentional comedy.
1: It is. It is. By the time you hit to a twice in a row jump scare of waking up from a nightmare. Oh my gosh, it's such a fun ride. Um which can be ironically said for this. If you haven't watched this movie out of interest because you heard the wicker man like with Nicolas Cage was a remake, you might have watched this around the time Midsommar came out. And there's you know, it would make a lot of sense the connection of those. I got to say something I think Midsommar does Uh, that is like a favor to this movie is helps you think more about why the pacing is the way the pacing is. I enjoy the wicker man because by the time the character's final act is, is happening, uh, they're playing this sort of trippy seventies music and he's running away from villains. And so far everything has been in the world, tangible, almost like folk sort of playing music a lot and so we just got into this like very trippy headspace it, it just it makes me think a lot about the time it was made and culture versus counterculture and what happens when someone who is law and order and the law of the r- religion steps way off the map of his comfort zone and is swallowed whole by counterculture and what that must have meant at the time and i can't imagine i imagine this playing to an older crowd in theaters when it was released as a very thrilling horror movie and i appreciate it for that um but uh, really uh lord summer isle is christopher lee man that guy is hypnotic he's I want to use adjectives that don't make any sense. Um, he i I would have loved to see him as James Bond. Apparently, he's uh, an inspiration for it, and he just uh, he has this severity to him and this, like belief in it. By the time you see him wearing like robes and a wig in a in a costume, like, I you for he has all the authority in in that field like he absolutely owns the movie and um yeah so I I I, I give the Wicker Man I, I one thumb up but I'm like flirting with two thumbs up after getting to watch it the second time there's a lot more I appreciated about it in context of movies that have been inspired by it later
0: yeah and I would give it probably a solid thumbs up. Christopher Lee has played some iconic, you know, people sadly think of him as like Count Dooku in the horrendous uh, Star Star Wars prequels, but he was Saruman in Lord of the Rings. Uh, but in his earlier days, he played a lot of different monsters. He was the mummy. He was Count Dracula. So he's got a very kind of creepy manner, but I, you know, 70s, those early 70s horror films, I think they were kind of feeling their way through the genre. And you mentioned music choice there. Not the most ridiculous uh, music choice. I still remember one time when I was in college watching uh, one of Wes Craven's first films, Last House on the Left, which is a film that I knew had been slapped with an NC-17. And if you're reading the synopsis of the plot about like basically murdered children, you understand that this sounds terrible but in the middle of what's supposed to be a fairly graphic scene they're playing like barney fife music in the background it was impossible for me to take it seriously so this one does a little bit better job than Mm -hmm. that but there are definitely some some era kind of things that i think when you're watching it in 2023 that you're like well that was a choice yeah but probably made sense at the time still fairly enjoyable
1: you want to say something no, I just I think it still works because I think it's like he's being chased by the 70s. It's like it's that's, that's true. But,
0: I, you know, just one that I've enjoyed. Um, The next one up is Mad Max, which came out in 1979, and for George Miller, it kickstarted what uh, continues to be an ongoing film series. Many of us probably think of the dystopic look of later Mad Max films like Road Warrior, which I personally think is probably the best. That was in the early 80s. You had the Thunderdome, Tina Turner days. You had the uh, Tom Hardy, Mad Max, Fury Road not too long ago. Pretty soon, we're going to get Anya Taylor-Joy as Fury But it all started with Mel Gibson and kind of a little-known, was very indie Australian film at the time. Eric, what did you think of Mad Max? There's still grass on
1: the ground. I think Hugh Key's burn as Toe Cutter is phenomenal. He was also in Morton Joe in uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And so if you think of the main villain in that, he he just... he makes the movie for me because the, a lot of these characters have these uh, pseudo-clockwork orange uh, individualized subculture going on. And it it's not as strong or as confidently produced as it is in like the Road Warrior or Fury Road. And it's not as off the wall, I think, as it goes in Thunderdome. But um, I will say toe cutter as a lead you get the sense that everyone is following his offbeaten path and i liked this movie a lot more this time than the first time that i saw it i really felt that i feel like like the reputation of the mad max franchise precedes this movie and when you watch it and you see just more of a straight-laced police officer who makes a choice that I've never once seen a straight laced police officer make in a movie where he's like, oh, man, I lost my partner to a criminal. Maybe it's time to take care of my mental health and and leave and to go do something to take care of myself. I think like
0: to get this entire family murdered.
1: <laughs> sure. Like, it's like it, he needs like extra revenge motivation. And I've. You know, those scenes and those sequences like, OK, well, when your character deliberately chooses non-conflict, I, the first time I watched it, I felt a little like, what am I watching this for? What am I waiting for? And then I was very surprised to find out that um, that ending, Ooh, that ending is striking regardless. Like and I'm, I'm not going to spoil it other than the fact that other really high profile things have spoiled it because people keep sort of taking that idea and repurposing it so i you know i just it's it's a it's sort of an action crime thriller where mad Max's full australian accent is on display and did i just call him mad max not mel gibson
0: yeah mad max well <laughs> mad max mel gibson same so, difference a difference without um, a
1: distinction yeah he he just it is unique It develops its own sub world and it's, it's not quite as removed from reality as the others, but the villain really makes the whole thing. And so I'm, I'm at a solid one thumb.
0: Yeah. That's where I would be too. Kind of a a solid um, one thumb. It's kind of amazing to think that the, the guy that later gave us babe pig in the city um, is the, and happy feet, which are two like really kind of enduring children's films started out making these kind of uh, movies this one is probably the most straightforward of the franchise. It's also the one that's least hard to pull out the dystopic um, future that they're trying to to tell you about. I think that becomes more uh, clear the further that you go on. Road Warrior, to me, the follow up is actually probably my favorite of the films. Um, but this one is kind of a more straightforward. I also think. Uh, you know, when you first come into the Mad Max movies and you see what some of the world is about, you think he's Mad Max. Cause he's maybe a little bit crazy, but I think this one was more literal. He was mad.
1: Yeah. He was angry,
0: angry. And I think what works here, you get, you know, the opening sequence, you have some really cool driving and car chases in the seventies was a great area for car chases. One of one of my favorite ones that'll be later in my countdown is French connection, which I always think of as these great car chases, but <clears throat> That to me is kind of what works here. There are some weird story things, like he, like you said, but they have a pretty decent villain, um, and I like Mel Gibson in this lead role. You could kind of see the qualities that helped make him a star. This is only actually five years out in front of the first Lethal Weapon movie, oh. which is almost amazing to think. Because the first Lethal Weapon was, uh, I think, eighty four. Wow! But uh, black, yeah. I know Shane Black someday. We're going to have to look at all of our Shane Black love. Uh, Next up on the list, I have always had an affinity for disaster movies. And you know what? The 70s went on a huge run of disaster movies. But right squarely in the middle is the 1974 film Earthquake. That does not look like a Los Angeles I would want to live in. Uh, This movie, 1974, it was one of the huge blockbusters that year. I had had a cast that was led by Charlton Heston and uh, Ava Gardner, it had George Kennedy. Uh, you know, if you're going and you're looking, you would recognize a lot uh, of people. Warren Green, who was big on Bonanza, you had kind of a young uh, Richard Roundtree in this in this film, and a young Victoria Principal who would go on to do some primetime soap operas. It also, ironically enough, uh, has a screenplay that was at least co-written by the great Mario Puzo. And this was the same year Year. that the Godfather part two came out. Um, and it was just a couple of years before he actually penned the script for Superman, uh, Mario Puzo. We think about him as the Godfather, but he wrote a lot of different things. Uh, He ends up sharing credit on this with George Fox. And this is George Fox's only credited film. And I'll let uh, you, Eric, expound on some of the interesting things he learned about what Mario Puzo said about his script.
1: Oh, I don't know what Mario Mario Puzo said about his script, but I know that it was a lot more elaborate and a lot bigger in scale than a lot of movies had been at the time. And it ended up on screen. I feel like your other writer uh, came in and was asked to trim down a reasonably budgeted movie. (laughs) And they still,
0: even looking at it, it must, it was probably a pretty huge undertaking at the time because of all the destruction and all the big sweeping sets and the star studded cast.
1: We're still three years out from anything like star Wars. And like, i i gotta say i was surprised impressed off put by one scene which is going to be obvious to people where people fall in an elevator and there is a cgi blood splatter but um yeah, they weren't even trying yeah they they literally gave up with that like it's like <laughs> I, a television cut apparently just cut out the elevator bit and i'm like why not but
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's a little weird. It, it's I also think it's a little depressing. Absolutely. I mean, I still enjoy it, but, um, <laughs> but they, it's not what you have come to expect from standard, um, you know, disaster I, I think... movie fare, especially in terms of how the characters and story plays out. Like when I was watching it with with my wife, she was almost like is that actually the ending it's like yep
1: yeah i think um roger ebert was quoted around the time the movie came out as uh talking about an earthquake as a very bizarre example because the uh, this movie came out in response to the popularity of another movie and i'm having trouble remembering the name
0: uh inferno i think it dante's was the tower towering, inferno. The towering, towering inferno. inferno
1: dante's dante's peace <laughs> so, is what i was thinking yeah yeah um so the the thing is that an earthquake there's no measurable way to know how the characters can work towards an ending earthquakes just go or they don't and so the movie kind of has that feeling where it's like is it over <laughs> like it looks over But I don't know. I, Yeah, I mean, just basically in brief, I I enjoyed some of the performances, but I thought there were a lot of, like, ideas trying to explore how would people at different levels and different roles react to a situation like this. And you get them sort of one at a time in a very procedural way. And there were some excellent special effects, especially for the time. And I gave it another solid one thumb up. That's kind of how I'm going all day today. Until next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have uh, we have some uh, interesting comedies in our future. I'm sure they won't all they won't all earn the uh, thumb up. You could also watch Mithrigan again and then see how you feel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, that's that's where I am. It's I thought it was a an interesting um, you know, and I tend to. To look at things through the lens of when they were created, too, and the the sheer scope and spectacle of what they tried to accomplish uh, when this movie came out in the 70s is pretty impressive. There was a whole bunch of disaster movies kind of in a string. You had Airport, uh, which I believe was a bunch of planes crashing. There's another one that I forget from Hawaii that was something similar to an earthquake where buildings collapsed and stuff. Towering Inferno actually, I believe, had Paul Newman in it. Um, so you kind of, you, there are a lot of different themes you see rise up time and again throughout the decade of the seventies, and you can see a lot of different examples of our last film, uh, is probably, we save the best for last, and that would be all the president's men. This one come, came out in 1976. Uh, it is based on the true story of Edward Woodward and... It's Woodward, Woodward Bernstein. Bernstein. Yeah, I'm not going to attempt because I might not remember all their first names. But it's got uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman playing them. This is the duo who uh, cracked the Watergate scandal wide open for the Washington Post. Um, Eric, this was your addition to to our list. What do you love about this
1: movie? That image that you just put up. The legacy that comes from that image. The the set design the they they basically created their own subgenre by making this movie and very few people have been able to you know capitalize on it or replicate you have things like zodiac and spotlight and most recently you have she said that replicates this format of of a partner a duo that are putting themselves at risk by pursuing a story and the stakes rise a little bit over that risk and It's about whether or not the truth will come out. And I think that's what resonates so hard. Is it's this well-directed, naturally lit, different looking and feeling thriller that has stakes that I want to see happen in the real world all the time. I just want the truth from people. And so more than being able to like, you know, like beat up a bad guy and whatnot, sometimes I think that's what makes this this movie resonates so hard is like getting to see the the work that went into having that come out, getting to live that journey of like in the real world, somebody did something and it caused a positive change, uh, you know? And I just, I don't know. I adore the performances. They they're just naturalistic enough but they're still recognizably themselves. Like Dustin Hoffman is playing Dustin Hoffman. Robert Redford is playing Robert Redford, but they're like honoring the natural role of these two people, these actual people. And just who, who is it that is deep? How Holbrook that, that, that character, just, just a disembodied voice, just, Perfect. I don't know. Like this is a hard two thumbs up for me. This movie is up there. Actually, I think no. So it's not, it's not in my top 10 of like all time, but it's up there.
0: Yeah, I gave it two thumbs up too. It's it's pretty high in my um, 70s countdown. You'll see where it lands a little bit later in the year. It is Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. I had to look it up because I knew I... Edward Woodward was, of course, our actor from The Wicker Man. Mm-hmm. That's that's why that was in my head. Um, but I I love the way it it's put together and I think it's hard to underestimate. These were two huge stars at the time. The seventies was a huge decorated for Robert Redford um, and for Dustin Hoffman. He, he does a couple of uh, really incredible movies in there. Alan J. Pacula is the director uh, of this, and he had made a couple of big uh, movies in that decade too. He had done Clute uh, and then Parallax View uh, that came out before this. Um, but this one, I, you know, just a masterpiece. Jason Robards plays Ben Bradley um he's a lot of fun in the movie too and i I love a good journalism and investigative story movie obviously she said for me was my number one movie of this year spotlight was my number one movie of the year that it came out when when you do one of these great journalism films well it resonates with you emotionally and sticks with you long after and this is kind of the first i think big one that set the tone in that mold uh just a great movie uh well worth uh Tracking down and checking out. Well, that is going to bring our seventies show to an end for today but never fear i'm sure there will be more 70s shows at some point in our future it is a very interesting decade and as we're coming up on um, the 50th anniversary for a lot of these different films it's kind of interesting to look back and see how they have really withstood the test of time Uh, next week we will be back with a little bit of something different uh, a film starring jennifer lopez (laughs) so until then we will see you guys at the movies